This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. The digital transformation in pathology is well underway, but what kind of opportunities does this present to us? We've heard all the buzzwords such as machine learning, artificial intelligence, and heard all about the hype about enhanced workflows and making pathologists' lives easier. But what is the future practice of pathology actually going to look like? Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Dr. Beatrice Knutson, Medical Director of Digital and Computational Pathology at ARUP Laboratories, as well as Professor of Pathology at the University of Utah. Over the past decade, Dr. Knutson has built a program that integrates histopathology, multiplex tissue staining, digital image analysis, as well as computational pathology. She's applying this approach to close the gap between laboratory research and clinical care and to develop novel algorithms for diagnosis, prognosis, as well as the treatment of patients. And speaking of Utah, don't forget to sign up for the Digital Diagnostic Summit, September 21st to the 23rd at the Elite St. Regis Hotel in downtown Park City, Utah. For more information, go to digitaldiagnosticsummit.com. Digital pathology is changing the practice of medicine. So come and experience an exclusive conference focused on practicing digitally. The Digital Diagnostic Summit will be held September 21st through 23rd at the Elite St. Regis Resort in the heart of Park City's Wasatch Mountains. This intimate summit will showcase the latest and greatest developments with the FDA, genetic testing, AI, and will unveil groundbreaking new tech. In addition, registration includes premier excursions like guided fly fishing, mountain biking, or a High West saloon tour complete with whiskey tasting. Our very own Dr. Joe Anderson will be moderating a panel of world-renowned pathologists discussing the puts and takes of going digital. These two days will change the way you look at the digital pathology landscape forever. So join us September 21st through 23rd. Register online at digitaldiagnosticsummit.com. That's digitaldiagnosticsummit.com. Dr. Beatrice Knudsen, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Joe. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you. Tell us a little bit about ARUP. I think many people are well aware of you. Uh, it's a unique organization. You have an academic partnership with the University of Utah and are a very large player in the clinical pathology space. But what about anatomic pathology? Tell us a little bit about the anatomic pathology program at ARUP. ARUP, as you mentioned, is a large reference laboratory. It's um, situated in Salt Lake City. It's owned by the University of Utah. The anatomic pathology division is at the Huntsman Cancer Center, Cancer Institute. It serves more the local patients and does comprehensive histologic services and also services in molecular pathology. Uh, we have about 35 uh, pathologists in the anatomic pathology division. That is quite a large practice then, 35 pathologists. And I'm sure it sounds like with those numbers, you probably have subspecialist expertise and so forth. Yeah, we are heavily subspecialized. And then maybe tell us a little bit about your use of digital pathology and, and, and your digital transformation there. So I was recruited to ERUP and joined at the beginning of 2020. The idea that the leadership um, had was to establish digital pathology at ERUP. So digital pathology actually had 
already a presence at AOUP before I joined to a partnership with a company called TechSite. TechSite developed a tool to detect parasites in stool samples through image analysis. And that tool is, a, is used in clinical practice, not just at ERUP, but also at other large reference laboratories. Based on that experience uh, and great experience, there was a, an appreciation was what uh, digital pathology can actually contribute and that uh, it would be very helpful to also establish it, not just in CP, but also in the EP division. And so this is really the goal of what I started to do here. That makes a lot of sense. And so what does it actually mean, though, in terms of opportunities? I think we're all in love with the technology. We're excited about what we think it's going to be able to offer us. I mean, certainly getting rid of that microscope, being able to look at slides on the monitor, I think are a nice feature, but there's so much more to it, you know, in terms of the workflows and, and so forth. So what, what, in, your, in your opinion, what, what opportunities does digital pathology present? Yeah, so there's really some, some amazing opportunities and they come through, in general, through automation of processes. And these processes are on two ends, really. So one is the algorithmic opportunities. And what that means is that we can quantify some features that we observe through the microscope. So that could be cells that look a certain way, or perhaps if we do immunohistochemical stains, we can enumerate numbers of cells that stain positive and also perhaps their locations. So, so these are opportunities to use digital pathology to take away some of the tedious work that pathologists do every day. Oh, I think we're certainly, we hear these claims, right, that p digital pathology is going to free us up, free up the pathologist, eliminate uh, some of the tedium, some of the repetitive tasks, and maybe actually do it better. Because I think there are some things that clearly machines or image analysis or AI algorithms are better suited to do than human beings. But what do we mean by computational pathology? Because, I mean, it's interesting, you know, an outsider may not appreciate that a lot of what we do in anatomic pathology or histopathology is qualitative rather than quantitative. That is, we're recognizing patterns, we're you know, making rough approximations of things. We're giving our opinion rather than facts a lot of the time. But in terms of measuring things, because that kind of is what comes to my mind when you talk about computational pathology or anything computational, what does that mean? What types of things are we going to measure? I mean, now we measure a few things, maybe like the size of a nucleus. And even that's relative, right? We're saying that's relatively a big nucleus, right? You know, rather than taking an absolute measurement, you know, we're giving an approximation that, oh, this much of the tumor is forming glands, but that's, you know, that's an approximation. And even stuff we claim to count, we're probably not very accurate, you know, in terms of saying, well, 17% of cells stain positive for key 67. I mean, that's a guess, right? So what ex what exactly do we mean when we're talking about computational pathology? Yeah, that's, you know, what you just said is exactly right. So pathology is, is a very manual process that is very subjective. So if you show the same slide to three different pathologists and you ask them, tell me how many cells are positive, you'll be getting three different answers. So one of the opportunities with um, 
computational pathology, which actually requires the digital pathology infrastructure. So you have to have, you have to be able to convert a glass slide to a digital file that then can be analyzed. The computational component is then to accurately and reproducibly count cells, for example, or measure other, take other measurements in the slide. It sounds like a very objective process, but we have to keep in mind, we still have to set a number of parameters in the algorithm that actually can affect the output of our measurement. So for example, um, we have to agree what we call a positive cell. So normally we look at the brown staining of a positive cell, but how intense that brown staining has to be to actually call it positive is also not fully objective and we we cannot actually use an algorithm to decide. So it still really needs the input of pathologists to make sure that the algorithm reports out exactly what the pathologist would normally do. And so we call this the calibration of the algorithm, uh, making sure that the algorithm actually gets the same result as a pathologist. A calibration of the algorithm that, sound, that sounds interesting. So it, on the one hand, it requires input from the human being pathologist to kind of say, what the, what is the ground level truth? Define our terms. What What is a nucleus? What is a gland? What is a positive cell? You really can't get away from the basics of tissue processing. The H&E section, how pink and purple are our hematoxylin and eosin? And you're talking about an immunohistochemical stain. You know, I think one of the weaknesses, or maybe compared to molecular, you know, one of the selling points of molecular is that in terms of DNA and RNA analysis, it's accurate, precise, and very, very highly quantitative and reproducible. Whereas immunohistochemistry, at best, we could say, well, maybe this is one plus two plus or three plus, it's partial staining, it's complete staining, you know, but the dynamic range just wasn't there. You know, so what considerations do we need to take into account just with, you know, the pre-analytic or the tissue processing in terms of the staining and the immunohistochemical considerations before we can even get to doing computational pathology. There's a lot of pre-analytical variables that introduce variability into the quality of the staining. We actually don't really have a lot of control over those pre-analytical variables coming through the tissue quality. The laboratory has the staining processes on the machine. There is very little technical variability that affects the staining quality. It's really mostly the biological variability of the specimen. So we don't have any systematic way of adjusting for problems that come in through poor tissue quality. But perhaps in the future, we can figure out ways to adjust for those. For example, in the images, we get a pixel intensity level for every pixel in the image. And we can look at the distribution of those, of pixel intensities and decide if the distribution is acceptable or not. Because if the tissue is compromised, we will not see pixels that have high intensity levels. So there might be a way of identifying tissues that have been compromised and also perhaps to adjust 
for poor staining quality in those tissues. So like you said, we're interested in the biologic variability, you know, not other factors. And it sounds like a rigorous QC process or standardization in your own lab really goes a long way to smoothing out potential irregularities. Similarly, you kind of alluded to before that even before we can begin to do computational pathology, these H&E images need to be converted to pixels. So, you know, which is a journey itself. What challenges do we face there before we can even get to computational pathology in terms of turning those images into pixels? The image itself consists of pixels. If we scan the glass light at high resolution, we get to files that consist of very large number of pixels. And each pixel is, represents a data point for the algorithm. So for example, in one nucleus, we can have a hundred pixels. So we get not just size information of the nucleus, but we can also get texture information, which um, represents, for example, the chromatin that the hematoxylin actually helps us to visualize. The pixel information is really what we're looking for and what we're measuring and quantifying. Texture information, that's fascinating because I think we like to think of what we do as existing in two dimensions, right? But we know we know that even, you know, this flat thing is actually a piece of tissue that's cut at a thickness of maybe five microns, right? So there is a third dimension to it. Is that kind of what we're what goes into texture? It's kind of a, uh, has to do with the thickness of the slide and and visualizing somewhat that third dimension. Yeah, so the third dimension is hard to visualize. So you need during slide scanning the capability to actually ca capture what we call a Z stack. So that means that the microscope has multiple planes where it takes the image. There are algorithms that can process the information from a Z-stack, but we end up with very large amount of data. And in general, it's um, difficult to, to process these three-dimensional images. So the other thing to keep in mind is for the regular staining we do in pathology, we don't really get three-dimensional data, but where we do get them is when we stain with fluorescent probes. So for example, for fish tests, um, here we get, we get 3D data. So even though it exists roughly in three dimensions, we're trying to present the data as if it were truly only two dimensions. Is that, is that accurate? That's true. I mean, the other way, obviously, when we're using slides is, is to recuts that go into the tissue block where we have parallel sections that are four microns apart. And we can reconstruct a three-dimensional uh, tissue piece. But when we do that, we have a lot of missing data because four microns at the tissue level is a lot of space, actually. It is. One thing that kind of goes part and parcel with computational pathology is this notion of artificial intelligence, which is certainly a buzzword and has pe people talking. First of all, what do we mean? Can we give a, a rough definition of artificial intelligence? Because I think people are excited about it, but when I hear people talk about it, I'm not sure if we're all even on the same page about what it actually means. Yeah, you're, you're right. For these... Um, digital files and the um, images from the slides, 
What it means is to teach the computer to recognize patterns that exist in the image. And what that means is that um, the tissue architecture can assume specific patterns that we actually recognize when we look at the slides and the human brain processes these patterns. So what we're trying to do is to have the computer figure out, kind of mimic the human brain and figure out what pattern exists in these slides. We use neural networks that are these interconnected layers that process the information. And at the end, what we're getting out is some very abstract features that the computer identifies and can use to distinguish between benign tissues and cancerous tissues or other, you know, other things that pathologists care about. It seems like people use the term computational pathology and artificial intelligence in the same breath, as if they're interchangeable and mean the same thing. So let's say I created a program, not that I'm a programmer, but let's say I, I worked with a team and, and we created a program that was able to measure maybe the nuclear contour, the regularity of the nucleus and assign that a score based on how uneven or even it was, and then measure the size, the absolute size of the nucleus, and then maybe find a way to count mitoses. But it's not learning anything, right? It's just a program. And and then I correlate and then I somehow correlate this with outcome and then I develop a tool, a score. Call it the uh, the Joe Anderson score. But to me that doesn't feel like there's anything that doesn't have any intelligence. That was just a program written by a group of human beings. So I would say that's a, a computational pathology tool. Am I accurate in saying that, that that not all computational pathology involves artificial intelligence? That is very true. So what you just um, mentioned very elegantly is what we call a feature-based approach. So that means you actually identify, you know, you tell the computer exactly what you want to measure and the computer outputs the numbers. And you can take these numbers and you can combine them into an algorithm that is a machine learning algorithm. So machine learning is the larger area that includes artificial intelligence, but it has many other methods outside of the artificial intelligence approach. So basically when you give the computer the features that you want to measure, that is called machine learning. Artificial intelligence is when the, when the computer learns the features that it should apply to, for example, separate out two groups. So then would artificial intelligence be involved in the development of tools and or is then artificial intelligence involved in these tools themselves once they're approved for clinical use or both? It's involved in the, so artificial intelligence is used to generate data from the image. So the actual, it's actually, it's generating a data set and generating a data set of features. You can extract the features from the convolutional neural network before they are further processed into the output of the network, which is a probability measurement. Uh, the only problem is that in contrast to the features you, you mentioned before, which is the size of the nucleus or how large it is or how round it is, those are features we understand what they mean. When we 
talk about these features that the artificial intelligence network generates, we can no longer comprehend them. So there's a big push in the artificial intelligence field to generate interpretable algorithms and to take away the black box effect and some very interesting developments that really allow to visualize what the computer learns. And we can also monitor learning curves so we can see how well the network learns. So you said the black box, which is has a negative connotation, the black box, meaning it's not transparent. We don't know what's going on in there. It's scary for maybe a lot of reasons. Number one, maybe we don't understand it, so we don't know how it works, so we can't depend on it. Number two, it may replace us, right? Because it's so we don't know how it works, but it's so good, and but we can clearly see it. It does better than we human beings do. <laughs> you know, or, no, or number three, we need... We need to arrive at a compromise where we are still the human beings making the decisions and we're using these tools for the best interest of all. Let's talk about the black box. You know, what are the considerations there? So, you know, let's say you develop a tool and then you want to evaluate its performance, but it's really, it's not transparent, you know, which could be good and bad because, so in terms of validating or evaluating the performance, I think it, it does need to be uh, transparent, um, clearly. But then in terms of, you said something else, like these tools are going to be looking at features that we as human beings might not be able to accurately assess or do so on a very repetitive basis. So in that sense, maybe the, the black box aspect is good. We had another we had another guest on this show, uh, Dr. Anat Matabuchi from uh, Case Western, and he was describing a new paper that they wrote showing how an AI algorithm could assess the way tumor cells are infiltrating through collagen bundles in breast, in breast cancer and how that correlated with prognosis. And it just seemed to me that that was way out of the scope of what a human being pathologist could do to recognize the way in which tumors were infiltrating through collagen, much less come up with criteria to reliably score that and report it. So it seems maybe the black box could serve a good function. I'm, I was actually surprised how concerned pathologists in general are about the black box because there are other areas of pathology where the understanding is a little tricky. So for example, if you go to next generation sequencing data, we have problems understanding if we see a variant exactly what it means in terms of the biology of the cancer. We also have some immunohistochemistry stains for genomic alterations where only very few pathologists really understand what these proteins are doing inside the cell and how they're associated with uh, aggressiveness of cancers. So there are many things in pathology and I think also generally in medicine that we don't fully understand. And so with these algorithms, it's more or less the same way. We get a measurement at the end or an output that we can validate and we can get comfortable using, but we may not really need to understand fully how it was derived. I'm not so worried about the black box effect. I think as we get more acceptance of algorithms that pathologists will be able to deal with the fact that they don't understand 
all the steps in detail that are leading to the result of the algorithm. So how is AI and computational pathology going to change what we do? You know, how do you imagine a future in the next couple of years looking different from, from the way it is now? So we actually have ongoing a clinical implementation project where we want to understand how pathologists would use the algorithms. In principle, there are at least three ways we can use them. One is for quality assurance. What that means is the cases are signed out and then the algorithm would be applied to see if it finds some inconsistencies with the report. Another way is to use the algorithm as a second opinion. So there, the pathologist may want to normally contact a colleague or even send the slides to a different institution for an expert opinion. Because these AI algorithms can be trained using the knowledge of the experts, in some cases they may be able to provide a better um, opinion than perhaps another pathologist in the same uh, institution. And then the third way to use the algorithm is for pre-screening of slides. So that would mean that all slides would be screened and for example slides that are not of diagnostic importance could be excluded before the pathologists see them. So for example, when we sign out a case of prostate needle biopsies, we get 12 slides or six to 12 slides, depending on how the tissue is being processed. But many of the slides will not have cancerous tissue. So those could potentially be screened out by an algorithm and reduce the burden of the pathologist to look at slides. How do we best determine how this technology can be used? Because you would say, well, okay, here's a tool that can serve as your QC on, on the example you gave prostate biopsies, right? So the pathologist looks at the 12 cores, makes the diagnosis, and then it's re-reviewed to see if he or she missed anything. Then someone might say, okay, well, if it works great in that situation, why not let's just have it look at it before we review the case? And then you might say, well, okay. And then how about let's just have it look at it and nobody reviews the case. I mean, how, how do we know when it, where it's appropriate uh, to use these technologies? You know, it's kind of an interesting psychological question because maybe this comes up. There's all kind of biases. If you say, well, what did the what did the AI think about this? If it viewed it before or after you, kind of like when you're a young fellow presenting the case to the attending, the attending will say, I don't want to know. I don't want to know what you think, right? I don't, you know, you know, because people want to view it with their own fresh eyes. Exactly, yes. And I think you're bringing up really an excellent point. So we, the way we think about it um, is that the pathologist really should decide how they would like to use the AI and have an opportunity to use it as they see it helpful to be used in their practice. And that will depend on the practice conditions of the pathologist and also perhaps their knowledge and comfort with a given case to come up with the right diagnosis. We want the pathologist to be in charge and not the computer to be in charge. So the way to implement that we think is um, by providing a tab for the case and we think that that could be incorporated into what is called a slide management system 
which is basically part of an integrated workflow of digital pathology. And in that system, the pathologist would have tabs that would take the pathologist to various AI algorithms and provide a reading by the algorithm. The pathologist would then be able to see what the algorithm reads by looking at the slide with an overlay of the algorithmic readout. So we think that, for example, what is being used is a heat map where if there is a red area in the heat map that would take the pathologist to where there is the greatest likelihood of, for example, a cancer focus. Yeah, so it's hey, hey, you look over here. Yeah. something something <laughs> might be going something might be going on. Yeah, here, or but you, I, I like that. So I think you, keeping the pathologist in the driver's seat is what we're really looking to do. Yeah, exactly. Right. Beatrice Knudsen, thank you so much for being with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself on a personal level. How did you become interested in artificial intelligence and digital pathology? My career actually started out very differently. I um, did both uh, at a clinical and laboratory educational track with an MD-PhD and spent a lot of my career directing a research laboratory. What excited me about digital and computational pathology is that we can get data out of histologic images. And so we can use this data in two ways. One is for assay development. And so in our own research we are developing algorithms that predict prognosis or treatment response as, as a main goal. And the other way to use the enumeration of the tissue is to perhaps link it to molecular mechanisms that cause various histologic features. So uh, that was a direct connection to my research program in prostate cancer metastasis, where we study cell adhesion and migration in terms of their molecular underpinnings. So those motivations took me to computational pathology. And right now I'm very focused on digital and computational pathologies, and I meet frequently with my colleagues who run research laboratories to try to translate their amazing discoveries from the bench to what we can see in the tissues. That is exciting. So where do you see the field going in the next 10 years or so? What gets you really excited? So what I'm hoping we can accomplish is to help find better and more individualized treatment for patients, especially in settings where there perhaps are um, lower, low resources settings. So what I'm hoping we can do is to replace some of the expensive molecular testing through a computer algorithm that can be used on the image. And so I think that would provide individualized care for more people and especially in areas that are not, don't have uh, the same resources as academic medical centers. We can replace um, some of the, for example, the assessment that pathologists do for aggressiveness of cancers. We can actually improve the accuracy of that with an algorithm. 
improving what we do with algorithms, making personalized medicine available to more people, particularly in underserved areas. Very lofty goals indeed. Well, our guest has been Dr. Beatrice Knudsen, Medical Director for Computational and Digital Pathology at ARUP. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.